Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. The whole world didn't go on spring break. That's good to know. I, I thought I'd miss something, but you guys missed it too, so that's all right. We're, we're all here, and we are ready to look again at 1 John as we've been making our way through that book and a number of other general epistles that are for the brothers. Before we get into the study, I want to um, give a brief uh, blurb for the sisters. Uh, Apparently, you all have for years uh, remembered to uphold the women in ministry in prayer when they go away on their retreat. So they have a retreat at the end of March, beginning of April. Uh, they'll all go to Victory Ranch, and they are looking for women to come together there. They've got four great teachers who are going to do four different sections. And Yvonne Harden, who is the director of women in ministry for Second, specifically asked, would you, would you get the amen men to pray for us again this year. So I want to ask you to do that. It's uh, March the 31st through April the 2nd. Uh, they'll be at Victory Ranch. They're um, pray for the hearts of the women who attend to be encouraged and for them to grow in knowledge of and dependence on the Lord. The four teachers are Catherine Sharp, Joanne Lewis, Dot Hammonds, and Kimberly Graham. Pray that we will bring him glory and honor as we praise and worship him, study his word, Spend time away together and have fun in each other's company. If you're like me, you'll say, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And then you, you're going to forget. So some of you are not going to forget. You're going to remember to do it. But for the rest of us, why don't we just do it right now, and then we can say, yeah, we prayed for you all, you know. Let's pray. Father, we pray for our sisters in Christ. Perhaps for some of us, we're praying for our wives. For others, we're praying for our daughters. Uh, who will be on this retreat. And Lord, we know how valuable it is for us to be in the company of other men. There are just certain things that are easier to talk about in the company of fellow men. There are areas of our lives we feel like we can be more vulnerable with in the presence of other men. We feel understood at a certain level uh, with other men. And Lord, that's true certainly also for our sisters in Christ. So, Lord, refresh them deeply through their time away with um, other women who can listen, who can encourage, who can speak the truth in love. Lord, I pray that your word would be powerful in their midst and that each teacher would have your help in preparation and in delivery and that each hearer would have your help in application, not just being a hearer of your word but a doer also. Lord, we do pray that you would bless this retreat, bring just the right number there. Not too many where people get lost in the shuffle, but not too few that it would you know, seem discouraging to them in any way. Lord, you know the right number, bring them, and I pray that you would change lives through this retreat, even as we pray and have prayed, that you would do that for us this morning. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, thank you. Now you can go home with a good conscience and tell your wife or other women you may, hey, we prayed for you today, which we did, which is good. And how true it is that we, we need the time with each other and they need the time with each other. So um, that's a very good thing. Well, today we uh, turn again to 1 John, as I've said, and we're on 1 John chapter 4, and we're only going to take six verses this morning. And these six verses are very, very helpful to us, very, very practical and pretty intense and you may not know that yet, but uh, you'll soon find that out. Um, before I read that passage for you, though, I want to put you right into wake-up mode and right into this situation and actually into a guy thing, kind of. You have seen this a hundred times in movies or in uh, television shows before, but you've never been right in the middle of it. Well, here you are right in the middle of it. So got your thinking caps on, your imagination station kind of cranking in your head. I want you to picture yourself as a well-trained young police officer in New York City. So you're in great shape. You have been well trained on your firearm. You know tactics and stuff and you are an eager beaver and you've been on the force for just a few years. And you are today in the midst of your busy day. It's a little bit unusual. I mean there's always something going on in New York City. It's, a, it's an intense place to be a police officer just as Memphis is as well. But in New York City on this particular day, you're downtown, uh, you know, well, Upper East Side somewhere, I'll say it that way. You're Upper East Side and there is a big drug deal going down. You've been called in to help on it. 
And in fact, it seems it's got a sting element to it, that there are embedded people there, and so it's all chaotic. And there were a lot of firearms involved in that takedown, and you're, you're in the midst of it. It's, everybody's adrenaline is pumping. It's about done, though. Lots of drugs there, lots of money there, a big transition getting ready to take place. And so you are walking back. You're part of a mop-up operation a little bit with other police officers going around looking just for any residual drug dealers that may have been there and may not have been caught in the sting. And you go into a parking garage, and as you walk around the corner of that parking garage, you see a very startling sight that you did not expect to see. You see your police precinct captain, who has been a captain there for 15 years, and you've known him all the years that he's the only captain you've ever known, and you trust Captain Mulrooney a lot, and he has his weapon pulled, and he is aiming it right at the head of your partner, who's been the only partner that you've known on the police force for three years. And so you trust him. I mean, Joe wouldn't steer you wrong. You guys have been through a lot together already. And so here the captain and your partner with gun right at each other's head, and you walk around the corner, and all of a sudden they're both startled, but they kind of look at you, and they look over here, and the captain says, Tommy, get his gun. And your partner says, Tommy, don't do it. Don't take your eyes off of him. You get his gun. No, don't do it. I'm a federal agent. I'm part of the sting operation. I've been embedded in your police force for years. I, don't do it. I'm a federal agent. Tommy, don't believe him. That's not true. He's not a federal agent. He's a bad cop, and he's trying to get this money and take it before we inventory it. He's just trying to line his own pockets. Tommy, don't believe that. You know me. You've been with me on the, in the car for a long time. You know I wouldn't do that. I'm not about to do that. And don't you dare take your eyes off of him. Don't you dare drop your gun because he'll drop both of us in a second, and he'll cover it up. What are you going to do? Which one are you going to get? Got to take one. Shoot them both in the leg? I don't know. You know, you kind of, I'm not, I, I, that's a tough place to be. Lives are at stake. Maybe even your own life is at stake in answering that question correctly. You have got to think fast. And you have got to somehow solve this standoff that's taking place right in front of your eyes. All right, in 1 John chapter 4, I know it's a stretch for you to believe, I think it's more intense because the standoff is not just life and death in this life, it's life and death forever. And the two people that are in standoff with each other, you've kind of known some stuff about you, it's, it's, it's complicated, it's deceptive, and you've got to discern which one's telling the truth and which one's telling a lie, and you've got to do it pretty quickly at great cost not only to yourself, to all the other people who would be influenced by that. And so one guy's saying, keep your gun on him. He's telling false truth, or he's telling falsehoods. He's not telling the whole thing. He's saying that Jesus Christ didn't come in the flesh, that Jesus is not the Christ who has come in the flesh. Don't listen to him, Tommy. Don't listen to him. He's trying to make it seem like Jesus actually died on the cross or something. We know that couldn't be Jesus. He's God. No, no, that's, that's not it. That God came upon him and the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Remember? Don't you remember reading that in the Gospels? Yeah, kind of. Okay. Well, and then he left right before the cross. God can't die. He didn't die. So come on, Tommy. Get that guy. Shoot him. It's the devil. Tommy, don't do it. It's this guy. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. 
By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Eternal destinies are hinging on who's right and who's wrong in this. Who is Jesus Christ, really? I mean, and, and what, how much do I have to have right there in order to be forgiven for my sins and to go to heaven when I die and to live with God forever as opposed to going to hell and suffering with the author of all these lies, the father of lies, even Satan himself. We got to get that right. And you got to get that right not just for yourself. You got to have that right for your children, your grandchildren, your neighbor, the, your friend who's in your Sunday school class, your, your friend who's in your Bible study elsewhere in town, but is beginning to believe some funny things. You're not sure you go with that. So <clears throat> there's a lot at stake here. 1 John is notoriously difficult to outline because unlike Paul, John here is not thinking exactly in rigid, logical terms, and so you can easily do the outline through it. There are themes that run through John, which you've seen already, but uh, within those themes, it's, it's sort of circular and thematic. I think there is a clear outline for these verses, but I think we'll see it more clearly if we look first at six stark contrasts that John draws in these, uh, in these verses. So follow along as we look at these contrasts, and then we'll see what the outline is and what the point is. What's the take-home for us? First, there's a stark contrast between two kinds of mindsets, two different mindsets one mindset is gullible, believe every spirit. John says explicitly, don't believe every spirit. Don't believe every spirit. There's another mindset that's discerning, discriminating. It's a mindset that says, okay, I'm going to test the spirits. I'm going to do a litmus test to see is this acid or base. I'm going to find out what, what is the truth or the error involved in this statement, and so I'm going to be discerning. I'm not just going to take whatever people say. Um, you know people on both sides of that camp. You know people that are gullible, believe everything, and you know people that are skeptical and believe nothing. Neither is appropriate for a Christian, right? We've got to believe something, so we have to put our faith in something, but we don't want to just believe anything and swallow you know, lies one after the other. But we know people like that, especially in this day and age of postmodernism when it's very, very um, unsophisticated to talk about truth with a capital T, truth that therefore implies falsehood. Well, well that's, that's true for you, but that, that's not true for her. And so you're both right. You know, let's just, uh, any other comments from anybody else? Let's feel a different part of the elephant. Maybe you know about the tail of the elephant, and you know about the... You know, the old Jainist proverbs about the blind men feeling the elephant. And, you know, one says, it's a wall. You know, he's up against the side. The other one got the ear. He goes, no, it's like a big palm leaf. And another one's got the trunk. No, no, no. Um, the elephant's like a snake, you know. And so each one's giving his own reality. And the truth is they're all right. Can't you see that? Of course, the only way we can say they're all right is because there's this omniscient narrator who's able to look at the whole picture and who is that in this world who can tell us about these religions so oh, that one's right on that point that one's right that one's right that one's right how do you know that oh I'm not blind the rest of you are but I'm not no there's no omniscient narrator other than the Lord our God who's revealed to us in his word what's true what's false my father, even, you think, oh, well, that's just postmodern. That's, that's a very modern development where we'd have this kind of danger. But no, my father tells a story or told the story of when he was joining the Baptist church that he grew up in, um, in Knoxville, Tennessee, that the minister came over to visit with him. He was playing with his friends at the time. He was young. And the minister had come over to explain baptism and joining the church. And so he sat the friends down with him and and he said, now, all of you don't go to our church, do you? No, we don't go to that church. You know, one's Catholic, one's Jewish, maybe one's another thing. But he said, well, you know what it is? It, when you're going on a vacation, you, you all get out the map, and you draw on the map how to get there. And you know, there's more than one way to get there. You could go this route, or you could go that route. And that's kind of how it is with this. That was a long time ago when my dad was facing that. This is not new, this idea that, you believe everything. The idea that 
There's one mountain, and we're all climbing that mountain toward heaven, but there are many different paths up that mountain. Again, a Hindu proverb there. That's just not true according to Scripture. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That would be the height of arrogance if it were not true, if it is not true. If it is not true, we are, of all people, most to be pitied because we've, we've put all our lives on that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He rose bodily from the dead, and that's my hope of heaven because he paid the penalty for my sin through his death, and therefore I will not die, which my sin requires, but God will look on me through his righteousness because I put my faith in him. So that's what we're banking on. If it's not true, we're, uh, we're in deep trouble. But Jesus, that's not the only thing that Jesus said or did that sounded like the height of arrogance because he's God and he's revealing himself to these people and he backs up his words with his miracles so that we've got some reason to think that this is a reasonable um, proposition for us to place our faith in. Gullible, discerning. On the gullible side, someone will say, it was Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount who said, judge not, lest you be judged. And that is true. So, who are you to sit in judgment on someone else's truth, someone else's doctrine, that you are supposed to just accept the good and all and, and embrace the whole thing and believe every spirit that's out there? In that same chapter, it was Jesus who warned us that there would be false teachers. And that um, same Jesus said, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like sheep on the outside, but inside they are ravening wolves. You've got to be careful for that. Now, how could the same Jesus in this same short space contradict himself so easily? Don't judge anything and believe every false teacher out there. He clearly said to be discerning. He clearly said, you've got to watch. Don't cast your pearls before swine in that same thing. Well, how are you going to make a judgment whether or not the person with whom you are conversing is a swine, doesn't value the things that you're speaking of? It doesn't mean that you call him a pig and walk away. It just means don't waste your breath in this context at this time. This person's not interested in what you're saying. So drop it. Two mindsets. You know, in order to underscore this, I mean, it's unusual that you'd be able to be here at this time at Second Presbyterian in its life uh, when they were redecorating the whole facility. I, Sandy, you know, had everything planned out so well. It's, it's worked out great. This room looks fabulous, and this is the room that I teach in on Sunday mornings, and so I was able to have the crew um, paint on the ceiling. Well, people don't look up that much, but paint on the ceiling gullible. I just put it up there so I can make this point as many times as I want to. And you all are just killing yourselves not to look <laughs> up there. And I don't know whether to be offended that you didn't look or not. Uh, I think I'm going to take it as a compliment. I'm going to take it as a compliment. Here's why. Uh, Thomas Aquinas from the 13th century, you know, the great theologian, scholastic theologian, unbelievable mind with this great system that he's laid out and everything. He was called by his contemporaries the dumb ox because he was a little slow moving and big and he was apparently the most gullible person he'd ever met at first. He would just believe anything and say so had so much fun with him in the monastery uh, that they, what they would do is that they'd come up to him at different times and they would poke him and say, Thomas, run, look at the window. There's a cow flying across the meadow. Thomas would invariably go running over, you know, and look out the window, and, and there's no cow. And they're just dying laughing, the rest of the monks, and they're just beside themselves kind of falling out there. There's no abbot around to rebuke them at this point, I guess. But, and, and Thomas is reported to have said, far better to think that a cow could fly than that a friar would lie. So... I'm so glad you guys didn't look. Like, He's just kidding. He's just making a joke. You know. But if everybody looked up there and then felt like an idiot because it doesn't say, it doesn't, does it? I don't think it says gullible up there. Uh, then you think, I can't believe it. He just told a lie. 
Okay, I don't think that was a lie. I mean, now you guys got to help me here. I think it was a joke, and there's a fine line, and I probably cross it too much, but you get the point. There are people that you know that if you tell them, hey, did you know that they wrote gullible on the ceiling of the sanctuary? Vandals got in and wrote gullible on the ceiling of the sanctuary. You go, really? You know, and then you go, you're gullible. Um, Far better to think that the cow would fly than that you would lie to me. So that'll, that'll put us in our place. All right, two different mindsets. A gullible mindset, believe every spirit. A discerning mindset that says, no, test the spirits. Well, how does that test go? All right, let's keep moving. Second, contrast, stark contrast. There are two kinds of spirits that are discussed in this um, passage as well. The first is that that is from, um, from God, as it says. But test the spirits to see whether they be from God. So there are some spirits that are um, from God. There is the Spirit of God. And um, also, um, uh, well, that's good enough. So, the spirit from God, the contrasting kind of spirit, is that from Antichrist, and that is mentioned in verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Sharp contrast. Spirit from God, spirit not from God. Spirit from God, it's Holy Spirit. Spirit not from God, Spirit of the Antichrist. Stark contrast. You got your gun out? You want to pick one off? You want to pick off the one from the Antichrist, right? Of course you do, but which one is it? So we got to keep moving in order to find out, well, yeah, how do we discern? How do we discover um, which one is going on here? Let's look at the other places that this contrast is um, laid out. In verse 1, John talks about, um, sorry, not verse 1. Verse 6 is the clearest place to see the contrast again. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So spirit from God, spirit not from God, spirit from the Antichrist. Spirit of truth on the one side, spirit of error on the other side. And... Another way of saying the same thing, going back really to the origins, the Spirit of God um, is, uh, is that Spirit in verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. I think I have verse 1 on here, but verse 2, um, it's the Spirit of God. And then in verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you versus he who is in the world. He who is in you. Holy Spirit, Spirit from God. He who is in the world, Satan. The one who ultimately lies behind every false spirit and therefore behind every false prophet. So, stark contrast here. Is it from God or is it from Satan? Now, don't for a minute begin to think that the Bible, that John himself or anybody else in the Bible believes in a dualistic universe, that you've got the Zoroastrian idea of a good God and a bad God, a yin and a yang to take it farther east. No, that's not the biblical worldview at all. There is one God and one God only, and this opponent against God, Satan, um, is, not an, any, is not his equal. Now, on earth is not his equal, if we did in our own strength confide, but there is one who is not, who is by the Father's right hand, Christ Jesus is he, Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same. He must win the battle. So they're not on equal footing, and Satan knows that. Satan knows he's tethered on a chain. He can't do that which God won't allow, but he can do a lot of, uh, wreak a lot of havoc and do a lot of harm. And so, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. We've looked at two stark contrasts that John um, draws already in this passage. There's a stark contrast between a mindset of credulity or gullibility, and then there's a mindset of discernment and discrimination. There is a sharp contrast between two kinds of spirits, the spirit from God, the spirit from the devil, the Holy Spirit or the Antichrist. Which side are we going to be on? And then we understand that there are two kinds of prophets, here also. There are false prophets, and therefore, by implication, there are true prophets. Um, verse 2. 
By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Whoever, uh, verse 5, they are from the world. They, these false prophets, false teachers. There are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. I'm sorry, verse 1. There are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. So you've got to test the Spirit because it is the Spirit that is behind a prophet. And it could be the Holy Spirit who speaks through a prophet. That happened all through the Old Testament and happened even in the New Testament times up until a point. But um, until then, uh, there were false prophets and true prophets. There's the Holy Spirit speaking through the true prophets, and then there are lying spirits speaking through the false prophets. Um, Examples. and Other examples that you may have um, seen before. Um, In the Old Testament... Moses comes along as the first great true prophet. And because Moses is this great true prophet, there are false prophets on the Egyptian side. So all the miracles that he does on the early stretches of the Exodus account, the magicians of Egypt are able to mimic, and they're able to pull those off. So it seems as though uh, Moses doesn't really have a leg up. It's not a distinguishing, he can't finally pull it off. You know, you don't know which one to shoot. Here is it, is God telling the truth? Is Moses telling the truth or are these magicians telling the truth? And there are miracles sort of on both sides until we get to the gnats. And when the gnats come, they can't do it. They could make blood come out of the river Nile. They could bring frogs up, but they couldn't handle uh, gnats. They just, that was beyond their capability. Of course, we're not talking about a Zoroastrian dualistic universe. No, God is God, Satan is not. But Satan can deceive, especially gullible people. That was true back then, it's true today. So two kinds of prophets, false prophets, and then by implication, true prophets. Who are these true prophets? I think verse 6 is uh, helping us understand that when we read, we are from God. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Who is the we? Who is the us? We Christians, you may be tempted to answer, but I don't think that is the right answer. I think John is using the apostolic we here. He is asserting his apostolic authority, and he is making it quite clear that he is the determinant, the determiner, of that which is true and that which is false as an apostle. And he's on good ground for doing so because it was this Lord Jesus that had um, predicted that he would have that authority and had selected him for that very purpose. Remember Jesus in his earthly ministry? It's in Mark 3, it's in Luke 6. Jesus went out and continued in prayer all night on a mountain after the first year of his ministry. He's already kind of been publicly displayed to Israel. He's doing some things. A lot of people are following him, but out of all of the people that are following him, he chose 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach, Mark 3. So he picks 12. The 12 are disciples. That's fair enough. We always talk about, oh, the 12 disciples, but there were many more disciples than just 12. The 12 are more properly known by the name apostles. They were Jesus's sent ones. They were the ones who were authorized to do miracles in his name, to cast out demons, etc. And we see them in their mission that Jesus had been doing that. And then he sends them out on a mission to do that in Matthew chapter 10. Or it's in Luke chapter 10 too. But they, they go out, or in Luke chapter 10, it's actually the 72. So the 12 have gone on their mission. And then they each take others with them on a second mission. And so Jesus is expanding the base. But the ones who did the miracles, and and this is true throughout the New Testament. Look in the book of Acts. Who performs the miracles in the book of Acts? It's the apostles. The apostles are doing it. And why is that? That is because the way that God shows who speaks for him, what spirit is behind this prophet, prophet being one who speaks forth words for God, is that God will back him up. God will make it very clear. God will do something that only God could do so that you'll understand listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's certainly true in the case of Moses. You know what? They won't listen to me, Lord. I'm slow of speech, and I'm not good at this. I I can't do this. They're going to listen to you, Moses. How is that? What what do you got in your hand? 
it's my staff. Okay, throw it down on the ground. Boom. Whoa! Back up. That's a snake. How did that happen? Now go pick it up by the tail. Lord, is this really you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Pick it up by the tail. Back to a staff. Now put your hand in your cloak. You mean like Napoleon? Yeah. Well, he wouldn't have known Napoleon. But anyway, uh, put your hand in it. Now bring it out. Ah! Leprosy all over. Okay, now put it back. Now bring it back out. Hey, wow. If they don't believe the first sign, they'll believe the second sign. They'll know I'm speaking through you. So go. And you know what Moses says? Yeah, no. Moses says, could you get somebody else? You know, I, I really, I don't think I'm up for this. Just as all of us would have done too. We don't feel adequate. But if the Spirit of God is working within you, you're absolutely adequate. So the test for a true prophet versus a false prophet is given us even in the Old Testament. And the one part of that test is miracles. And that's how God, again, distinguishes the apostles. Um, Acts chapter 5 is one of the clearest passages. It just says generally of the apostles that they were the ones healing people and they were doing all of these miracles. Jesus was accompanying them to show them, uh, to show the, the crowds, these people speak for me because this is a true miracle. It could not be done without supernatural agency. It does, it does not, um, it, it, you couldn't explain it through natural means. So that's, uh, that's what's going on. Now, the reason that I said that John is referring to an authority that he got from Jesus himself is in John chapter 14, we have this promise of the Holy Spirit. And this is in the context of the upper room discourse that begins in John chapter 13. Jesus goes to the upper room to celebrate the Last Supper with his disciples, his apostles. And so they have, uh, he's washed their feet. He's uh, had that Last Supper. And now they are having this final discourse before he will be crucified. John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Where have we heard that designation before? The spirit of truth. This same John later writes of the spirit of truth and the spirit of error in 1 John 4, 6. So here we have a, an inkling of this spirit of truth. Whom the, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. So he promises he's going to give them a spirit, the helper, verse 26 of chapter 14. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You may have tried to claim that verse for yourself and your Bible study when you didn't have time to consult commentaries and you didn't have time to really pour over the Bible and study. You just said, the Holy Spirit, just show me, show me the answer. Show me what's up, because you said you would lead me into all truth. But I don't think that's a promise for you. I think that's a promise given for these 12 who are sharing this supper with Jesus, who are his designated apostles. And the spirit of truth would lead them into all truth. Just so that they got it, he repeated it. So, in chapter 15, we also see him uh, discussing the power of the Holy Spirit in them in verse 26 of chapter 15. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. They recognized later that that was going to be one of the criteria for an apostle when they did pick a successor to Judas who betrayed Jesus and abandoned him. In Acts chapter 1, it describes how they, how they were looking at the field from which they would pick one under the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit. And they said, it's got to be somebody who was with us from the beginning, and it's got to be somebody who was with us, an eyewitness of the resurrection. So, given those parameters, who are we going to pick? And so then they, have, they bring two forward, and they pick one, and they trust that that's God's will. Had to be with us from the beginning. You have been with me from the beginning, Jesus says, and therefore you are going to receive this helper, the Holy Spirit from God, who will lead you into all truth and who will call to your mind everything that I've said about you, uh, have, have said to you. And so that's a great comfort as well. Um, one other place that I want to look at in this, in this same um, 
discourse is in, sorry, chapter 16. And looking at in uh, verse 16 at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them right now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The spirit of truth, he will um, call to your mind everything that you have heard. He'll, he'll help you remember. You'll be able to do it. He'll guide you into all truth, and he'll call to your mind all the things um, that you have, have heard from me in the past. John 14, John 15, John 16. The spirit of truth, the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth. He is predicting the New Testament in those passages. Jesus is predicting the New Testament in those passages. And John is buying into that apostolic authority when he says, we know the truth. We will tell you what to do. So in the Old Testament, there are three tests for a false prophet. And there were lots of warnings against false prophets in the Old Testament. Um, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, Jeremiah chapter 23, 1 Kings chapter 13 talks about lying prophets. Well, that's got to be confusing to you, right? If God is going to deceive his people by allowing someone to come in there, a wolf, dressed up like a sheep, saying all the right things, and you're not sure with whom to believe. You're, you're not where, clear where to point your gun. Well, he said, I'll, I'll make some uh, tests for you so that you'll be able to see it. First test, the test of miracle in Exodus um, chapter 3 and 4. We've already looked at that. Second test in the context of Deuteronomy 13 where Moses is uh, shown this revelation from God. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you, to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. Second test, not just the miracle test, the orthodoxy test, that you evaluate prophecies that are coming now or will come in the future on the basis of prophecies that have already been given. And if they're out of accord with those prophecies, you know, I know that was from God. That was Moses. Then you can trust the law of Moses. You can trust the prophets of the Old Testament. So it's true in the New Testament. You look at Old Testament revelation in order to evaluate what the apostles are teaching. Remember... Um, Luke recording about the Berean church in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. He says the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they um, examined the scriptures daily to see whether what Paul said was true. They examined the scriptures. They knew that it had to be in, uh, in line with scripture if this was true doctrine, and it was. So nothing to fear from the orthodoxy test. Previous revelation informs a claim that might be made today. Third test is in Deuteronomy 18, where we're told that if somebody prophesies something to you and it doesn't come to pass, you can stop right there. You don't need to wonder. That person's not a prophet. God does not make mistakes. He does not ever err. A 90% accuracy rating for a prophet does not qualify you as a true prophet. It means you're a false prophet and pull the trigger on that guy or throw a stone because that person should be stoned as a false prophet. To those three tests, the New Testament adds one more, at least clearly, while not uh, denying those three, and that is a morality test. It's by their fruit that you will know them. In the passage that we talked about earlier in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said that there will be wolves who come to you in sheep's clothing, well, uh, how are we going to know whether they're wolves or sheep? And the way is, is it by their fruit, by their lifestyle, by their morality, the way they live. And that's repeated in 2 Peter chapter 2, in Jude, the one chapter letter uh, toward the, right before Revelation. Same criteria. Look at their life. So it's not just their doctrine that you've got to watch carefully. It's your life you've got to watch carefully because people are looking at your life. 
All right, pushing right along. Two kinds of mindsets, two kinds of spirits, two kinds of prophets, two kinds of Christs. What? How can that be? Well, in uh, verse 2, John makes it clear that he's got in mind Jesus Christ. So that's one kind of Christ is the kind that had the name of Jesus of Nazareth associated with it. And the other kind of Christ is in verse 3, the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Is this Jesus? Is this true doctrine that we're hearing from some teacher that's come into your household either through media or in person? Or is this false Jesus? Is this Antichrist against Christ? What's the longest word in the English language? Don't blurt it out out loud, but I guess you could, but we're Presbyterians for goodness sake, so let's don't do that. But I grew up hearing that the longest word in the English language was anti-disestablishmentarianism. And I I bet a lot of you did too. That was kind of the front runner for a long time. 28 letters uh, in that word. And yet, when I was just a little bit older, uh, Mary Poppins told me there was an even longer word, 34 letters, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. So you all knew that word too. Well, that's 34 letters. Actually, the longest uh, word in any of the major language dictionaries is, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, uh, but it, it, they've got over 1,000 letters in it. It's one of these long made-up words with all kinds of things to describe um, a lung disease contracted from the inhalation of very fine silica particles. So that's the longest. What does that have to do with 1 John chapter 4? Not anything much except for anti-disestablishmentarianism. I don't know exactly what disestablishmentarianism is, but I know that anti-disestablishmentarianism is against it. Because anti just means against. So we're not talking here about the spirit of the Antichrist, meaning the spirit of the fake Christ necessarily, the pseudo-Christ, although there's that element to it, but it's the spirit of the one who is against Christ, the one who is opposed to Jesus and all that he stands for. And the only references that we have to this word antichrist are all from John, all in these letters. So three times in 1 John, chapter 2 for the first two, and chapter uh, 4 here for the other, and then the final one in 2 John, chapter 7, speaks of antichrist. But the same person seems to be in view in Paul's um, mentioning of the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, and then in the book of Revelation, the beast that comes out of the land um, is also seeming to be the Antichrist, the final embodiment of many Antichrists that have come into the world to oppose Christ all along the way. So, two kinds of Christ. All right, two kinds of worlds. Really? An alternative universe? No. The word world is used in this passage in two different ways, and not just in this passage, but in other places where Paul speaks as well. Um, And we can see the two kinds of uses in verses 2 and 3. There's one kind of use of world in mind, and that is the created world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. It just means in this planet. It's where we live. It's the created world. There's nothing pejorative about it. It's just talking about creation and all things that God has created are good. So it's just good, and especially people where we read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves the world. Yes, the created world, God loves. The world of human beings created in his image, yes, God loves. But there's a second use of world in John and in this passage that God does not love and we're not supposed to love either. And that is the subverted world. Verse 4. Little children, you're from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. In that instance, the world does not refer to the created order that God made, but rather refers to an order that human beings have made. It refers to a system of values spun independently of God that are in direct opposition to God. So, 
in 1 John chapter 2, you've already seen this, verses 15 and 16, John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, it is from the world. So in that sense, we do not want to be worldly. We want to resist that. There are two different understandings of world here, and we'll understand the passage better if we get that. All right, we're coming to the payoff. Then there are two kinds of tests for where to point that gun and which one of those guys is the bad guy and which one's the good guy, which one to take out. And those tests are given to us in the two parts of this of this passage. So there is something of an outline that we can give for these six verses. In the first three verses, we're going to learn a test of content. In the next three verses, a test of credentials. The content of the teaching is one way by which you will know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. By this, you know The Spirit of God is what verse 2 says. By this, you know. The contrast is, in verses 4 through 6, the credentials of the teacher. By this, we know the Spirit of truth, in verse 6. And that we is referring to the Apostle John, who is writing this authoritative letter to his converts in Christ, his dearly loved sheep in Christ. He is their shepherd and he calls them little children, beloved, he cares about them, and he is guarding them from these false spirits. So, first test, the content of the teaching. Let's let's read uh, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Here's the big question on this test of content. Is verse 2 the definitive test? So you would ask somebody, you're not quite sure whether this person that came into your house um, is really a teacher from God. Uh, They said they were Jehovah's Witnesses, and you're not sure if Jehovah's good. or Oh, yeah, we believe in Jehovah or Yahweh, and so... And they, they say, you say to them, can you say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Okay, well, what else do you want to tell me? Because I know that you're legit now. Because you just said Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Is that the test? Or is it, in fact, something about Jesus, to be sure, but there's a lot more to be said about Jesus than just he came in the flesh. We have to know here from that Jesus is paired with Christ. So it's David, great David's even greater son, who is the son of God. Is this Jesus that you're proclaiming to me divine? And is this Jesus that you're proclaiming to me human? Did he come in the flesh? Did he stay in the flesh? Was he crucified, dead, and buried, and then bodily he rose from the dead? The heretics in John's day were denying that bodily resurrection, denying that incarnation that Jesus was fully human. But if he's not fully human, he didn't pay for my very human sins. He must be God because only God could pay, but he must be human because only human beings should pay. And that is the great glory of uh, our gospel message that is wrapped up in Jesus. So what's the litmus test content-wise? It's what about Jesus? Not just this little statement. This is an example of the figure of speech of synecdoche, whereby a part stands for the whole. So you can just say, Jesus. I want to know what you say about Jesus, and that's the right answer. But what about Jesus? you got to spell that out a little bit more because there are heresies about Jesus too. So we got to be careful in discerning those heresies. I'm so glad God gave us a second test because how adequate are you feeling at this point to discern what is true and what is false about Jesus? What's, what's at stake here? Well, I will say on the content test, the reason it comes down to Jesus, because the matters that really matter are those that affect our salvation. Am I going to go to hell if I believe what you're teaching? And if they say, yeah, most of you are going to go, I don't think I want to believe that. No, you're going to say, no, I don't want that. Well, they're not going to tell you if it'll take you. Oh, no, they're going to, they're going to lie. They're going to lie through their teeth. And that's not a good thing. So you've got, to have, you've got to know whether this affects your eternal salvation. If you have a disagreement about baptism, 
it's not going to affect your eternal salvation. Your Baptist brothers and sisters are going to be in heaven with you if they've trusted in Christ. But why take a chance, as someone said earlier? Just Presbyterian, you know, that's the way to go. But uh, no, Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, even some Roman Catholics who believe this same gospel that we believe, that's, the, that's what's at stake. It's the same gospel. That's what's at stake. And it's all wrapped up in one word. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. By synecdoche, one part standing for the whole. The second test, though, is awfully valuable, too. The credentials of the teacher. John is effectively saying, I'm an apostle. Listen to me. I'll tell you what's true doctrine, what's false doctrine. That's how you'll know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You listen to them, the false teachers, the false prophets, and you'll go the way of the world. The world loves what they have to say. The world thinks it's not judgmental. It's kind of everybody can go that way. The, the world just loves it because they have itching ears and it tells them what they want to hear. But I'm not telling you that. I'm talking about a narrow way that leads to salvation because broad is the way that leads to destruction. So follow an apostle. They knew John was an apostle by long years of association with him, by his endorsement by the rest of the apostolic band, by miracles that John had done, they knew that they could trust him. They didn't know about others, so trust him. And I'm so glad that we have that ability for us as well to figure out, whom do I believe? You can say it's no big deal when someone is ordained by the church to be set apart as a pastor teacher in the church, but it actually is a pretty big deal because it gives you a greater degree of confidence that what this person is saying is legit. It, is, it has been checked out as being in keeping with apostolic doctrine, and that is our hope. How do you do that? Six verses, you talk forever. I mean, that's crazy. But it all boils down to this. Where are you going to put your gun? Where are you going to discharge your weapon? You've got to decide. Spirit of truth, spirit of error. Go with the doctrine concerning Jesus that is propounded by those whom you can trust because of their credentials. They've been set apart as those that have been checked out, and therefore we can do it. Does that mean you can't read the Bible at home? Of course not. You can't be in Bible studies here? Of course not. You can't have a really meaningful discussion around the table. None of us is ordained. I guess we have. Of course not. But it does mean that the church has been given the responsibility to guard this precious deposit of the truth, and it's their responsibility to pass it on, which we hope and we pray that we will do faithfully by following Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to follow you. But Lord, we know how great our enemy is. His craft and his power are great and armed with cruel hate and on earth is not his equal. But we do not confide in our own strength, Lord Jesus. We look to you, the one who has come from the Father's right hand as fully God, born of the Virgin Mary, to become fully human so that you might fully pay for all our sins. Help us to remain true to you till death. And please protect us from being deceived. For we know from what you told us when you were here before that even the elect might have been deceived by some of the lying miracles, the false signs, the magic that antichrists will perform if that were possible. Lord, hold us tightly even when we lose our grip on you because we ask it in your name, believing that there is none higher. Amen.